Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I had a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. 1989, the number of the summer. We're going to get down with the funky drummer and the pizza delivery boy that throws the trash can heard it all around the world. It's Do the Right Thing. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear. And this is the podcast where each week we watch one film from the AFI 100 Greatest Films of All Time list, 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? This week, we're talking about the Spike Lee classic, Do the Right Thing. We actually have a special guest, Spike Lee, on the show today. But before we I'm get- I'm sorry, can you say it again? We yes. have a special guest, Spike Lee, on the show today. That was the best news we could have ever gotten. It's uh, such a fun interview. I cannot wait for you guys to hear it. But before we get into Do the Right Thing, let's talk a little bit about Pixar. Um, last week, you and I were talking about our favorite Pixar films and what could possibly- be the one that we would put on the list. I thought about it a lot. I looked on a line a lot. There's a lot of talk this week about Pixar films because Toy Story 4 just came out. Have you given any thought to what would be your Pixar pick? Well, I can say it won't be Toy Story 4. Wow. <laughs> wow. Really? Amy, yeah. I thought it was so good. Really? I did. I, I wanted did. more existential angst from Forky. I thought there was something really beautiful about Toy Story 4 and it actually all comes back to this tweet that I saw written by uh, Monkey Boy uh, 1138 He writes, and I'm assuming it's a he, uh, not sure if this is intended, but the Toy Story movies, the first three anyways, can be compared to the workplace. All the characters talk in a workplace conversational tone with Woody as the boss. And with the arrival of Buzz and new guys in the office, and that guy very quickly rises through the ranks and new ideas and ways of working. And then once we get to Toy Story 2, Woody's being offered a new job at a new firm. Uh, does he leave for a job that's less fun and interesting but pays better, or does he stay loyal to his firm? And then in Toy Story 3, it's this corporate takeover, losing colleagues along the way, adjusting to new ways of working that are perhaps for faster and more intense than they used to be. Ultimately, Woody choosing 
to work for a small startup uh, over the big company. And correctly so, Monkey Boy 1138 hypothesizes that Toy Story 4 is going to be about retirement and the transition to not working at all. And I thought that was such a adult theme. I saw this movie alongside my mom who just retired and I watched it affect my mom. My mom's like, this is not a kid's movie. I was like, yeah, you just watched what you are literally going through. And I thought to deal with like that idea of knowing when your time is up and to finally find your own joy and, and, you know, go off and to greener pastures. I thought that was such a beautiful, I don't know. I just thought it was a beautiful Mm -hmm. way to kind of wrap up the series and not even wrap up the series, but wrap up that arc. It's so beautiful. Too bad baby boomers have made it so that we never get to retire. I mean, that is true. We'll be working for the rest of our lives. Um, To answer my Pixar pick, uh, which you didn't even answer yet. You just said you didn't want (laughs) Toy Story 4 on the list. Toy Story 2 feels super strong, but then I also like Inside Out a lot as well. I haven't seen Inside Out enough to say that it definitively belongs on the list, but it also, that movie I think has affected me the most out of all the Pixar films on the first viewing. And like, there are moments like up the beginning, whoa, crushing, you know, it's whatever. Beautiful. beautiful. Uh, Wally, the opening of Wally, uh, man, beautiful. But there was something about Inside Out that they described something about the brain and thoughts and emotions that I never really saw articulated. And, and the way that they showed that and gave that to children to have, to articulate themselves was just, I thought that was just beautiful. I think that I, I do like that idea of like externalizing the emotions you're having. I am feeling anger, not mm-hmm. I am angry. Yeah, we have the books now. My kids and I will read those books. And it's really interesting to kind of help label emotions. It's something that I don't think that either of us really were given access to as a kid. And I think that movie works as an adult and it works as uh, as a kid. And now there's a, uh, I think, a roller coaster of emotions opening up at Disneyland uh, and the Pixar Pier, which... I, I wonder if you'll get all the different emotions in there, but we'll see. <laughs> um, now, Amy, I know you still haven't given me a pick, so I'm going to give you a couple more seconds to think about it as we listen to uh, people who called in with their favorite Pixar picks. I've got to go with Wally for my Pixar choice. Uh, it's funny, I, when I watched the, uh, the General, I couldn't help but think of Wally. You know, it's this, it's this silent film, near silent film, protagonist who. He gets in this major predicament all, uh, you know, for the cause of love and, and, and for um, uh, subsequently the cause of something greater. One of my personal favorites is A Bug's Life. And I, I'm saying this partially because I know that no one's going to mention it. It has one of the better ensemble casts uh, of the Pixar movies. I think that it's really good and I think that it gets less credit than it deserves. It may be recency bias, but I, I don't care. I, I love Coco so much. It makes me cry like a little baby every time, so I would put that on the list. If I had to pick one Pixar movie to be on the list, I would have to pick Inside Out. I think the way it teaches uh, children about emotions and kind of puts them in, in boxes that even kids and some adults can understand in a way that they never really thought about before was really incredible. Not to mention, you know, Amy Poehler is awesome in that movie. Amy, do you have a Pixar pick? You have to pick one. Uh, yeah, you know, I said. <laughs> all right, she takes them all again. She's not picking a Pixar movie. Squirrel. Squirrel? I don't know. I'm just quoting the dog in, in Up. No, oh <laughs> so my gosh. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, but no, so people wrote in some really interesting stuff about Toy Story. And I'm actually stealing this one thing from the Facebook group. 
is from Joel Salinas, and he wrote that he has a really interesting theory about why Mr. Potato Head is the heavy in this movie, why Mr. Potato Head's kind of the closest thing to an antagonist. He says that his fan theory is that Mr. Potato Head was Andy's favorite toy when he was a toddler, and he has been filled with resentment since Woody took on that role, and he seizes this opportunity to dethrone Woody. Ooh, I like that. I like that a lot, too. I buy that. I buy that. Fake as Hell brings up a point that I wish we talked about and I want to talk to you about, which is why doesn't Buzz know he's a toy? Um, All the other toys do. You know, is this the process of realization, something that all toys go through? And um, I think that that is an interesting thing. I wonder if it's like the older you get, the more you find out, like you get more wisdom. He's like a fresh toy. So he's seeing the world with new eyes. He's just out of the box. Right. It's kind of like he's just been born. It's kind of like the way Forky goes through all that sort of stuff. Uh, in Toy Story 4, no spoilers. And Michael E. Rubin uh, says that he would like a shirt that uh, says uh, PTAD, uh, which is uh, post-traumatic uh, animation disorder. Uh, he wants one of those from <laughs> TeePublic. Speaking of TeePublic, we have a bunch of new shirts in the shop. Go to TeePublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to check out some of our great new shirts. And we are coming up with a Faust shirt. It looks amazing. You're going to love it. And head over to PodSwag, where we have our amazing, beautifully designed Unspooled post where you can follow along with us every single week and cross off all the movies on the list. It's a nice piece of art as well Wait, as a way to follow. the Randy Newman Faust shirt is actually happening? Oh, I'm going to show you the design <laughs> as soon as we stop doing this. Um, all right, Amy, should we get into the actual episode? Absolutely. Let's go. It's 1989 and millions of Americans watch as the Berlin Wall falls. Thousands of students protest at Tiananmen Square and millions of gallons of oil pollute the Alaskan coast in the Exxon Valdez spill. The Energizer Bunny keeps going and going and going. Cotton is the fabric of our lives and we all learn what our brain looks like on drugs. Allegations that Major League Baseball star Pete Rose gambled on the game became public. Rebecca Schaefer, star of the TV show My Sister Sam, is murdered by a stalker who got her address from the DMV. The cost of a Super Bowl ad is $675,000. The most popular Christmas gift toys are Tetris, Sega Genesis, and the Nintendo Game Boy. Audiences are loving The Cosby Show, Cheers, and Roseanne, and the big movies of the year are Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and today's film, Do the Right Thing, which comes in at number 96 on the AFI Top 100 Films of All Time list, 2007 edition. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Do the Right Thing. It is written and directed by Spike Lee, and it stars basically a bazillion working actors, some who are making their film debut, like... Rosie Perez and Martin Lawrence, some who were absolute veterans of the screen, like Ozzie Davis and Ruby Dee. You have in here Danny Aiello as Salvatore Sal Fragioni. He owns a pizza shop. You have Spike Lee playing Mookie, who works at the pizza shop. You have John Turturro and Richard Edson. And then outside the pizza shop, entering into the pizza shop, wandering around the streets of Brooklyn, you've got Giancarlo Esposito. You've got Robin Harris. You've got Samuel Jackson as a DJ, as Mr. Senior Love Daddy, a name that's Kind of redundant if you think about it. And yet Hmm. I love it so much. And anyway, this all takes place on the hottest day of the year and things just get hotter. We're really lucky to actually have Spike Lee as a guest on today's show. We'll be playing that a little bit later. Can I just silently scream about that? I know. It's one of the best things ever. (laughs) So excited to have him. So as we talk about this movie, just know that coming up we will be talking to Spike. So I think we're going to probably pull away from talking about Spike, talking about this movie until we actually talk to Spike about this movie. Yeah, there's no need to put words in Spike's mouth. Spike has a lot of words. Yes. You know, this opening sequence of the film is immediately uh, attention-grabbing. It's Rosie Perez dancing 
her ass off. And it's to the Public Enemy song, uh, Fight the Power, which plays 15 times in this film. As a matter of fact, this song was written for the film. So this is like Spike Lee approached Public Enemy for this song. And this opening sequence, I think, sets the tone for a movie in a really interesting way. We've talked about Overture in the past. And the level of dancing and the freneticism to it and the anger in it and the imagery, it really brings you into this movie, I think, the right way. Yeah, it's an aggressive dance. You know, you've got Rosie Perez snarling. She's literally wearing boxing gloves at one point. She goes through a bunch of pretty awesome costume changes. She's not trying to dance sexy. She's dancing very in your face. The camera makes her in your face. She's punching at you. I love it. I love the way she snarls. And I heard she actually had to dance eight hours to make up this montage and that she threw out her elbow. Uh, But there's like this way of it that doesn't look perfect. It doesn't look stylized. It doesn't even look necessarily music video. It looks natural. It looks like an awesome girl dancing for us. But I want to jump back 30 seconds earlier because, yes, this is the introduction to the movie. But it's an abrupt one because he starts with a different song and then transitions into this. Let's listen because I think it's a really interesting shift. starts the movie with old-fashioned music, with sort right. of a, a sad, mournful jazz sound that you hear actually under a lot of conversation, sometimes in ways that are distracting, sometimes in ways that are kind of emotionally complimentary. But he's trying to immediately make a shift. He doesn't even just start aggressive. He changes into the aggression. Well, I think that that was kind of a staple of Spike Lee's work. I mean, that kind of jazz music that plays through, I think, about Mo Betta Blues. And I have a theory on this opening, and I have a theory about this whole film. Wait, is it based on the way that he edits it so that Rosie thrusts her crotch when the name Spike Lee shows up? <laughs> I did not notice that. By oh, the way, I, I noticed that. I think this anger that we're talking about in this number, this, you know, this intensity came from the fact, you're right, that she did this for eight hours and did not know she was going to do it for eight hours. And at the end, you know, Rosie Perez has uh, been quoted in interviews as saying, like, she was just going, like, I hate you. I hate you, Spike. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. And all that anger and rage at Spike from making her, you know, uh, throw out her knee and get tennis elbow from eight hours of dancing is there. So I I feel like that rage is a real rage. Um, Are you saying that Spike's style of directing in this opening number was Kubrickian? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) But I think it actually works because, you know, if it was just a nice dance, it's not... It's not thematic. You know, it may be interesting, but I think that this, like an overture, is showing you what we're in store for. And I think it starts off like fun, like she's dancing, and then it gets, you know, into the boxing gloves and we see that, but then the exhaustion and anger, it just kind of builds. And this is where my point of the movie is. The opening opens up on a set, almost like a stage. Like you are seeing her in front of these brownstones. The movie is shot in Bed-Stuy, practical locations. They built the pizza shop. They built the Korean grocery. But this opening is shot on some sort of stage. I don't know if it's uh, flats. I don't know if it's just a curtain. Um, And it made me start to think of this film like a modern version of Our Town, like a play, like a fable. It's When you think about, you talked about Sam Jackson playing this DJ. He starts off at 8 a.m. and he's there until midnight. And the next day when the, you know, when it comes back, he's there at 8 a.m. again. And I thought this movie has so many 
magical qualities. You know, it it is otherworldly. It is very grounded. And and the things are happening have weight and purpose and gravity, but it feels to me like a modern day fable. It, it, it There are elements to it that are not of this world. I think the color plays into that. You know, this is a film that is in many respects showing us a problem. And I don't think it's like giving us a solution, but it is showing us an issue and and enlightening to us. And I feel like that's what a modern fable kind of does. It couches a larger issue in something else. I mean, is that a crazy idea? Uh, no, that's brilliant. And and it, it dovetails with a little bit of what I was thinking too, because I was watching this opening. I love that you're calling it an overture. I think that's really, really smart. And I love that we're seeing this lineage, this Ben Hurrian lineage right. proceeding up to here. And what I was wondering, thinking about it is like, I was looking at the colors of this dance number and I was thinking, oh, I wonder if in this watch, having just seen West Side Story fairly recently with you, I'm going to be seeing the West Side Storyness of it, the theatricality of it. And what I've always admired about this film and what popped out to me even more because I was watching it with, I think, this kind of rubric was the way that this film works kind of like a Shakespearean play. You know, the ones that are overstuffed with a bazillion characters. You have people playing the fool. You have people playing the characters who just incite anger. You have all of these people wandering around speaking in kind of a gigantic, sometimes quasi-poetic language. Even the three men on the corner, the three men on the corner with like Robin Harris, who I love because of House Party, which as you know, is one of my favorite films. One of the best. One of the best. I mean, the way that these three men talk, these observers who are always commenting on the action, Mm -hmm. you know, because everybody in this movie is kind of just saying how they feel. There's not a lot of like subtext so much. There's a lot of emotional subtext, but not a lot of subtext to actually their lines. You know, people don't really lie in this movie. They just say exactly how they feel. And yet sometimes there's this beautiful repetition to it, you know, this beautiful kind of inversion playing with language. Like, here's Robin Harrison, three of the guys just sitting outside talking. It's a goddamn shame. What's a goddamn shame? Sweet Dick Willie. That's my name. Damn, man, do I have to spell it out? Come on, make it plain. Okay, but listen up. I'm going to break it down. Let it be broke, motherfucker. Can you dig it? It's dug. Look at those Korean motherfuckers across the street. I bet you they haven't been off the boat a year before they open up their own place. That's right, man. It's been about a year. A motherfucking year off the motherfucking boat, and they already got a business in our neighborhood, a good business, occupying a building that had been boarded up for longer than I care to remember. And I've been here a long time. Yeah, it's that sort of beautifulness of the the dig, the dug, the break, the broke. It's so gorgeous. And then only a couple of scenes after this, you have the mayor giving a long talk about like how these young people on the street who make fun of him don't know what it's like to be poor, to look at your five kids. And then the young man's response to him, he's using a little bit of Shakespeare right back at him. He calls it a soliloquy. You don't know me, my pain, my hurt, my feelings. You don't know shit, though. Don't call me bum. Don't, don't call me a drunk. Y'all, I got the sense of God give a belly go. Don't call me nothing. It's disrespectful. I know your mamas and your papas raised you better. Yo, man, I hope you finish your little soliloquy, man. Because first of all, I've been being straight for years. You understand what I'm saying? That, of course, is Ozzie Davis, who is fantastic in this movie. And to your point, even the names, the mayor, mother, sister, there's this otherworldly quality, and I think it's all kind of captured by this heat wave. You know, whatever it is, everyone is a little bit slower. Their emotions are a little bit more out on their sleeve. It it feels to me in many ways, and, and I think you really nailed it, 
a Shakespearean play. We are in this world that may not be totally real. We're, we're experiencing, I counted it, one, two, you know, three, four, five, six, like seven locations on one block that that are highlighting different people you know and you know whether it's i call them the kids like the martin lawrence uh you know group of kids who are out to have fun or whether it's you know uh, these three guys who are out on the stoop it's the korean grocer it's the pizza place it's you know mookie's girlfriend it's mookie's sister you know we're capturing all these different you know um perspectives and they're all very different but they're all living in the same space it kind of I guess feels a little bit like Midsummer's Night Dream in a way. It has this kind of ethereal quality to it. And I think the heat wave really brings that out. Uh, now I'm just wondering like who Puck is because I feel like there's a lot of people competing to be the Puck of this mm. movie. Well, you think it may be Giancarlo Esposito or do you think maybe is it Radio Rahim? I mean, I kind of love the idea of Robin Harris's Puck, but I don't think I think that. he's too stationary to be <laughs> yeah, Puck. You know, he's puck. like, he's kind of commenting <laughs> on the side. Like, I feel like they're like the chorus of the film. And I know we're yeah. mixing uh, Greek uh, and Shakespeare, but I think there's a lot of elements. And, you know, Spike Lee is a, a filmmaker who loves film and studies film. And, and mixes Greek and Shakespeare and film all the time. Like in the movie that he did, um, Chirac, which he did a couple years ago, which is just completely based on Lysistrata. Yeah, I think that... It's a really savvy way to deal with a very complex issue because this is a movie that I really feel isn't uh, driven by anger. It's really more of a reflection of culture, right? I mean, we're in this world where, you know, everyone has feelings and, and people get called out for their feelings. Like, you know, in that scene that you were just playing with the, the three guys on uh, the sidewalk talking about the Korean grocer as kind of being the the bad guy you know i think robin harris calls out like well were you were you gonna open up a you know a, a a grocery store you know people call each other out on their bullshit and you know whether it's mookie uh you know approaching uh pino later in the movie going who are your favorite you know movie stars who's your favorite basketball player you know it's like everyone's calling each other out so i think there's like an incredible fairness to this film I mean, even to the point where you have those race rants, it's just not one perspective. I think he does an amazing job of balancing people's perspectives on each other. And when you see everyone giving a race rant, it exposes you do two things. One, that everyone is kind of, you know, maybe seething with this thing of, of feeling like, you know, they're not getting their own due. And I think that's something that we're in our own culture right now and why this movie is important in the now. But also it exposes racism for what is it? Stupid. It's it. it but by seeing four people talk about it from four different perspectives, it, it just underlines the stupidity of it without this movie hammering you over the head and going like, isn't racism bad? Shouldn't they all just hug? It, it's a very elevated way of dealing with a very complex topic. Yeah, I mean, maybe that is why it feels like everybody's just saying what they're thinking all the time without a lot of layers of camouflage, even though what they're saying is not necessarily correct. Like, there's a right. difference in here between honest and correct. But I, it's, it's should... honest because that's how they feel, right? I mean, everyone is being true to themselves. And I think that's what makes these characters feel really engaging because there's no villain here. There's no villain um, besides the police, right? I think the police are probably the clearest villains because they murder someone for no reason. But they're almost faceless. Like, they're not a character in the film. But Danny Aiello isn't the villain. He, you know, in this moment of anger, does something, you know, very destructive by destroying his 
boombox, but it's not like he's not the mustache twirling villain. And I think that that's really interesting that the police are more faceless. I think that that's a, a really smart choice. Yeah, I mean, I think the film very deliberately wants to humanize Sal. Absolutely. I mean, John Turturro said that what's interesting about his childhood and Spike Lee's childhood is that he grew up, John Turturro grew up in a mostly black school and that Spike Lee grew up in an Italian neighborhood. And so that they actually were able to sit on the set, you know, they worked together a bazillion times after right. this and kind of talk about their different experiences and how they saw each other's culture and kind of check each other on that. And it's interesting because I don't know even if in that anger montage, and let's take a listen to it in a second, if people are even saying what they really, really, really think or what they would say if they're just pushed. You know, because right. I think you see in this film that people aren't walking in always angry, but if you push them too much, there's something that might come out of them that they're not even proud of. But here's that montage. Dago Wab, Guinea, garlic bread, pizza slinging, spaghetti binning, victim on, Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, solo meal, non singer motherfucker. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big guy, fast running, high jumping spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon spade mulling yarn. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, me no speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing sabadam bitch. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red wearing, menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker, yeah, you. It's cheap. I got good for ice for you. Now catch it. How I'm doing? Chocolate, ego cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana, but this Jew, asshole. Yo, hold up. Time out. Time out. Y'all take a chill. You need to cool that shit out. And that's the double truth, Ruth. I mean, can we talk about the camera work in there too? Yeah. Because what he's doing is making it double aggressive. Like he's having the camera zoom in towards these people and he's having the characters stare back at you. Like they're looking at you, they're looking at the camera and most of them aren't even blinking. I totally agree. The camera work here and throughout the whole movie really puts you in this mode where you feel on edge. And he is constantly ratcheting up this tension, you know, whether or not, you know, it's sort of more subtle with mother sister being a little bit elevated over the mayor, or it's much more intense when Radio Rahim is blasting his radio in Sal's pizzeria at the end. And they're kind of, you know, you see Sal up high and you you see this kind of, um, you see power through the angles of the lenses. And yeah, he's always showing you power, intimidation, weakness, everything through the camera angles. It's always like he shoots Radio Rahim so large, so commanding. He's almost always shooting him just like from below, looking up at him, taking yeah. up the entire camera in a way where he's the face almost even looks a little distorted, the way it's like leaning into the camera. And then he'll like pivot and show you, you know, Danny Aiello looking tiny, small, further away whenever they have their first confrontation over the music. He's using the camera so actively to set a mood. When even Rahim and Bugging Out walk into the pizza parlor for their last fight, he has the camera so tilted to the side to pay attention, so crooked that you're just immediately unnerved. And I mean, I he's so smart. I think like people make the mistake sometimes of talking about Spike Lee only as a truth teller, only as somebody telling stories from the streets or whatever. And 
this film is such artistry that I just want to make sure we like all sit down and be like, he is making some huge choices, him and Ernest Dickerson, his yeah. DP. Yeah, Ernest Dickerson is just an amazing DP and somebody that Spike worked with for a long time. I mean, but doing such subtle things like even lighting a sterno can underneath the lens of the camera to kind of give you this idea of this warped heat wave. And, and you know, obviously we just talked about these angles. And the shot that I really like, yeah. if you don't mind me saying, is towards the end when Ozzy Davis and Ruby D are in her apartment. And by the way, you know, knowing that they're like a long married couple, like the dream couple, you... It's funny watching this movie, like wanting to root for them to get together, even mm. though she could not stand anything about this dirty man. And why would she really necessarily want to take care of a man who's like a drunk? But yet, when she's finally in their apartment together, and you're so happy to see them sort of reunited because of their, you know, real life world just sort of imbuing the scene, what the camera does is it watches them wake up and then it pulls from her bedroom down the hallway, out the window standing on the street and then sharply pivots to Spike Lee. Like, I don't even know how they did that, to be honest. No, I mean, it. it is a staple of a great Spike Lee film to have these kind of camera magic moves. They really are, you know, when I think about that one shot that he does where someone's on like essentially a dolly and, you know, they're being, they, they're moving down the street, but they're not walking, but yet they're moving and the camera's coming at them. It's, I think about that scene at the end of Mo Betta Blues like that. It's just a very intense thing. And the camera forces you to be an active participant. And you can kind of see every character's perspective in this film because at certain points, you are low status. At other points, you're high status. And I think this movie does a great job of showing you the perspective of how anger turns out the worst in people. And when you're looking at someone that is of a different color, the anger almost comes out as this, what you were saying before. I don't know if they mean these things in these racist rants, but it's in that moment of just anger at somebody like, it's just to hate and hurt, you know, because you're angry and there's no other way to kind of grapple with it. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of, did you see this film called Bodied that came out last year no. by Joseph Kahn? No. Oh, I really want everybody to see Bodied. Yeah. It is it, it is about this in a way. It is about the way we use words to absolutely destroy each other, even right. when we, for fun, because it's about battle rap competitions, right. but also the... Ugh. I almost don't want to say anything about this movie. I don't want to spoil it. Is this but the it, Eminem it is all produced about, movie? Yeah, yeah. Right. It's Eminem produced. It's about when is the context to say certain words. And it's right. about word policing. And it is an incredibly complicated, really screwed up film. And I love it a lot. So right. uh, bodied. I would I would recommend people yeah. watch that if you want to see somebody trying to kind of see what else is there left to say in the space that Spike Lee hasn't said or that he might say if he was making this film again today. But it's interesting when this movie comes out, and we'll talk about it a little bit later with Spike, the idea that, you know, this movie to a handful of critics really frightened them because it is showing this internal side that we don't want to acknowledge. I think that we're living in a time where now, you know, if you would say this is a movie where like the, the lid of the pot is like bubbling, the lid is off to a certain extent now. People are much more open with the way they want to show how they feel on Twitter in, you know, in the, you know, from the rallies in Charlottesville, like these ideas that people are okay with, you know what, fuck it, I'll show you who I am. And I think here is a little bit of a simpler time where it was a little bit more under the surface and the anger was like the, uh, like the, the pink slime in Ghostbusters 2, just running beneath the city. This anger is just kind of, growing there and it, it's capturing new york at a really interesting time this is, i was 
from New York. And I remember during uh, when Howard Beach happened and, you know, and M. Michael Griffith was murdered or, you know, even the graffiti artist, uh, Michael Stewart, who was killed in police custody, just severely beaten on his way to Bellevue. And, and you know, these incidents uh, and this rage, I don't think we were ready to really be open with it. And I think now it's so out in the open that we're, we're trying to deal with it, but it's still a really sticky situation. You know, it's like, it, it's, it, I think that race is a, a hard problem to talk about. I'm even having issues trying to try to articulate exactly how I feel and talking to you about it. Yeah. I mean, you know, usually on the show, we wait until the end to talk about the negative review, but mm-hmm. I think maybe here for this, especially before we talk to Spike, because he still has a lot of strong feelings about it as, as he should, maybe we should do one of the negative reviews here sure. early on, just to kind of set the stage more for what was happening when this movie came out in 1989. Um, this is one of the famous ones. There's a few famous ones. This one is from David Denby at New York Magazine. He's now at The New Yorker. And, you know, one of the things you'll notice as I talk about it is he actually compliments the filmmaking sort of and yet. So what he says is, in Do the Right Thing, filmmaker Spike Lee does the right thing, the wrong thing, and finally everything. This immensely skillful, humane, and richly detailed movie about racism in New York suffers from trying to satisfy everyone. And then he says that this film is going to create an uproar because Spike, who he calls in his review, a middle-class black, is hoping to capture the anger of the underclass and that Spike is thoroughly mixed up about what he's saying. And here's he kind of goes on to kind of explain what he means. He says that divided himself, Lee may even be foolish enough to dream alternately of increasing black militants and of calming it. But if Spike Lee is a commercial opportunist, which is what he thinks he might be, he's also playing with dynamite in an urban playground. Uh, Denby says that Lee's version of a poor neighborhood is considerably sanitized, that there's no rampaging teenagers, there's no muggers, there's no crack addicts. This is crazy. That's a racist review saying that that this street, this one block needs to represent that. That's a crazy – this is a crazy review. And then he says kind of his bigger statement, which is like what is this film going to do? And he um, says that like if an artist has made his choices – And settled on a coherent point of view, he should not be held responsible, I believe, if part of his audience misunderstand him. He should be free to go dangerous. But Lee has not worked coherently. The end of the movie is a shambles, and if some audiences go wild, he's partly responsible. I hate that review because it's so so myopic. I mean, in in a way, he's saying that Spike hasn't done his work. Where are the muggers? Where are the gangsters? Like, whoa, hold on. Like, that's a racist review of this film. And to say a filmmaker is responsible for how people react to it, it, then... Or he's only responsible for how they react to it if he hasn't said how to feel. And he feels that Spike didn't say clearly how to feel. Yeah, and Spike's deliberately trying to screw with the audience, which is what I really admire about it. You know, he wants you to be horrified that Sal's pizzeria burns down. And then he wants you to feel like... Oh, why am I more horrified about that than I am about Radio Rahim dying? Because he does these things right next to each other, and he kind of lingers over Sal. You get to know Sal better than you really get to know Radio. Radio doesn't do a lot of talking, and he's messing with you deliberately in a way that I think is really effective. Well, and I think that the problem with the movie or the problem that the way that people perceive the film is the title, right? The original title is Heat Wave. This title is Do the Right Thing, and I think a very base point of view is – oh, he did the right thing by starting a riot. And that's dangerous to say, because if the right thing is to start a riot, then everything's going to be a riot, and that's it. Yeah, it's offhand almost when it shows up in the movie. Here, let's take a listen. Come in, Doc. 
Man, I gotta go. I'm working. I'm, I'm working. Doctor. I'm working. Doctor, this is the mayor talking. All right, all right. Doctor, come on. What? What? Always do the right thing. That's it. That's it. I got it. I'm gone. It makes me think of my dad, honestly. Like, my dad ended every phone call with me uh, by saying, be good. I love that. That was yeah. his version of do the right thing. Just be good. Yeah, and I think, you know, this movie, like anything that is before its time, and that's we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, people don't know how to handle it. They don't know how to even talk about this. We are now in 2019, and we're still trying to figure out how to speak about these issues because they haven't gone away. You know, 30 years later, everything in this movie is just as equal to what was going on there. Yes, there are changes, but the people aren't changing, you know? And I think yeah. that, that I, and I think that it's a 30 year process and we have, look how far we haven't come in a way. And there we've come far in other ways as well. But I think this movie does a great job of fairly showing Sal and his two sons in a way that I think it just shows that he is a really good writer who has an ear for all these types of characters. And I also think that maybe without the influence of Danny Aiello, this character might've been a little bit harder. This is from a documentary that Spike made uh, just talking about Sal. And I think they had this like kind of battle about who Sal was. So this is, um, this is Danny Aiello and Spike Lee talking. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't want, I don't want you to paint too pretty a picture. I don't I want to paint too pretty a picture for the guy and, and make oh. him look like a flag waver that he's the world's greatest liberal. And I don't know if that's right. I think, I don't, I, I, we thought, and I thought, he's not a racist. He's a nice guy. He sees people as people. Well, I think the style was a racist. So, yeah. So I feel like that's interesting. It's like you have two people, the director and the writer, saying he is a racist. You have Danny Aiello saying he's not a racist. And I think that that kind of battle and, and the portrayal of that character makes him a more complex character. Uh, yeah, I mean, I heard that... Uh, Daniel really did not want to have to say the N-word uh, mm. when his character finally does. And he was like, I genuinely don't think that Sal would do that. And it was, I think, a fight between him and Spike. Spike was like, you, you're you going to say it. And he was yeah. like, I don't think he would say it. It's and shocking, yet- though, when he does say it because you see him just a scene before with his sister. And you're like, and you see the way he interacts and, and the care that he takes in the pride in the community. And yeah, the way he's like, I want to stay here for, you know. 50 years. I don't want to leave. He's like insisting it to the cops. But yet also this film isn't letting him off the hook in little ways. You know, his son is consistently saying racist stuff around him and he's not really always stopping it. I mean, there's that scene where he's like sitting down and talking to his son about why does his son have so much anger in him? You know, this is to Pino and Pino's being like, my friends make fun of me for working in this neighborhood. And he's like, well, they're not your friends. I've never had any trouble. And he gets this like choke in his voice about how proud he is to have seen the neighborhood kids grow up on his food. And then Smiley walks by trying to sell his art. His son gets furious, runs yeah. out there, starts screaming at him. But the camera doesn't go outside. The camera stays with Sal, who stays at the table, who keeps and sitting at the table, who puts his head in his hand. He's too hot. He's too tired to deal with his son. And then when he finally goes out and tries to fix it by giving Smiley a couple bucks, he's waited too long. And and things just keep getting angry. Well, I think that that scene that you're talking about is one of the, the best kind of moments of Sal because – it shows him in inaction, right? Like he, he, the when he talks about how he is, he seems like this lovely guy. I love the community. I'm there for the community. That's him talking about himself, telling everybody 
his who, he tr- is. who he is. And then you see him in a moment and he does nothing. He does that thing that you do when you're like uh, on a bus or a subway and someone's getting into a fight with somebody else and, you know, uh, you know, and not a physical fight, but like a verbal fight. And you're just like, I just am trying to make myself small and not be here because I'm uncomfortable. And, and that is such a damning moment. And then I'll go back to the end scene, which I think is the, going back to the idea of like racism and anger, they go hand in hand. But it's interesting how anger activates this racism because the scene before he uses the N-word on Rahim and literally breaks his his boombox with his bat. And by the and by the way, he's grabbed that bat before. You know, we've seen him grab that bat before. So he's, you know, again, he's saying one thing, but his actions are showing something very, very different. Um, but you see this moment, he's like, we had a great day. I am so happy. I'm going to change the name. You guys are going to now, it's going to be, you know, Sal and Sons. Mookie, you're like a son to me. And then literally 30 seconds later, he's screaming the N-word and he's smashing a boombox. And you're like, whoa, what just happened? But it's it's how anger can flip a switch. And, you know, I think there is a, a slight thing to be said for can we be held responsible for how we are in anger? Does anger truly represent how we really feel. It's really interesting. I I think that that scene at the end is so fascinating. It goes from pure joy to pure hate in a matter of seconds. And it's believable. And it's not like, where did this come from? But it's, and I just think it shows the power of anger and it's, and mob mentality. I mean, the same thing. It's like, it's a pizza place. They had a good day. They were closing. And just minutes later, people are in there. Everyone in that, everyone in that neighborhood rioting, lighting a fire. And it just takes one second and everyone will flip and it's contagious and it grows. And why are you doing it? Who knows? And the next morning you have this great like kind of epilogue where it's like clear heads. It's like, well, what do do we hate this person? I don't, you know, I don't think that Mookie hates Sal at the end. I don't think, you know, I mean, the, the villain is the police, but it's not Sal. Ultimately, it's not, it's, I don't know. It's a complicated thing. And I think that that is really the genius of Spike's work in this film is like he knows you're caring about Sal. He he puts down everything on paper to make you care about Sal. You even get to see how these fights that Sal starts to have with Bagenau and with and with Radio Rahim start, which is like both of them asking for extra cheese. You know, like mm-hmm. Bagenau giving him a hard time, asking him for extra cheese. There's kind of this weird joke that extra cheese costs more than the slice of pizza itself. I know, it's such a funny idea, but that's a it's, very New York yeah. thing too, which is so weird. Yeah, but it happens. And then the thing that Radio Rahim says is he asks him for extra cheese too. And you get the sense of like Sal's been in this hot pizza all day. He's like sick of these people trying to like ask him for things that he like can't really always afford to give them. And you get this kind of building to him of why he starts being irritated with them and then like how it gets like bigger and bigger and bigger. And Spike is doing that. So it's never easy for you to say who's right and wrong. Right. And I mean, that's just masterful because I think so many films that try to tell you how to think just tell you how to think. Yeah. And this one refuses to do that at every level. It goes out of its way to do that. I mean, I'm actually going to read a counterpoint from Ebert that starts with him watching this film at the Cannes Film Festival, which just sounds nuts. I... Would, was never old enough to have been there, yeah. but my God, I wish I could have been. And by the way, I should also say, like, Cannes is sort of notorious for being almost like a hotbed of reactions to films. Mm-hmm. It is the one festival I've been to where people actively boo all throughout a film. They will, if they hate it, they will let you know as it's going on. They'll let you know when it ends. Wow. They will, they're very 
antagonistic at Cannes. And it's kind of like the do the right thing of film festivals. It's really where people go nuts. That said, here's what Ebert said. Leaving the theater after the tumultuous world premiere of Do the Right Thing at Cannes in May of 1989, I found myself too shaken to speak, and I avoided the clusters of people where arguments were already heating up. One American critic was so angry, she chased me to the exit to inform me, this film is a call to racial violence. I thought not. I thought it was a call to empathy, which of all human qualities is the one this past century seemed to most need. And then he says, and I really love this, even-handedness is at the center of Spike Lee's work, and yet it is, it is invisible to many of his viewers and critics. Because he is black and he deals with anger, he has been categorized as an angry man. However, it is not anger, but rather a certain detached objectivity that I see in his best work. And he ends with kind of saying, among the many devastating effects of Lee's films, certainly the most subtle and effective is the way that it leads some viewers, not racist, but thoughtless or inattentive or imbued with the unexamined values of our society, to realize that they have valued a pizzeria over a human life. Yeah. I mean, just slow clap for Ebert for all of that. He's been, he was always one of the great defenders of this film. And I think he wrote about it more eloquently than almost anybody. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. I wanted to ask your opinion about this character, Smiley, right? His name is Smiley. He is a person who is disabled uh, in the neighborhood carrying these two pictures of Malcolm and Martin. That's the, the, the first kind of scene of the film is him holding these two up. And it, the movie ends with a quote from Malcolm and Martin. And I think the idea is, you know, passive resistance and then, you know, uh, a more aggressive approach, right? And then that's what the movie is juggling, right? The whole time. Right. I mean, it's a, it's presenting them as a polarity, but it ends with a shot of them together smiling as though yeah. maybe even though we're polarized, these opinions also coexist. Yeah. And you are led into this, this kind of connection between these two men by this man who has no voice. And I mean, he does have a voice, but he he's disabled people kind of brush him off right like he's yeah 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 yeah. and and the, he's they, a bit irritating yeah to be honest. even like we talked about before you know sal uh, puts his head down you know mookie's always like go on go away i'll talk to you later but then here's this character who is for the sake of my point voiceless who then does the most extreme action you know he, you would think, oh, he's the passive one. He, you know, he's he's sweet. He's nice. He's kind. But then he's the one who lights, literally lights the match that sets the pizzeria on fire. And I just wanted to think about that, the idea of like the voiceless who, you know, we maybe take, you know, we don't pay attention to people. We We put them on a lower tier. We don't listen to them. We don't hear their thoughts and then are shocked when an action kind of comes out of them. Or at least that's how I felt. I was looking at this character like, whoa, where is all this coming from? And it's like, oh, but no one, I don't know what he's like because I'm just viewing him as like, oh, this sweet, you know, simple guy. You know, he, of course he wouldn't be violent. Yeah, I mean, that actor, Roger Guinevere Smith, who plays Smiley, has always been really fascinating to me because- you know, that I used to be like a theater critic here mm -hmm. in L.A. And Roger Guinevere Smith is like one of the theater guys here. He's really? like one of the people that are like, oh, it's Roger Guinevere Smith. We should definitely go. Like he's epic in his plays. And, you know, he and Spike have known each other forever. In fact, I don't know if you knew this, but a couple of years ago, 
Spike Lee directed a movie based on this one-man show that Roger Guinevere Smith was doing around here for a long time. Really? Yeah, it's on Rodney King. And I actually pulled a little bit of it because I just want people to see sort of the range of Roger Guinevere Smith because he does all sorts of things. And this one is a Rodney King performance that's just him on a stage, just him talking. And he kind of does it almost like poetry. But it's Saturday night, right? You got a job to go to on Monday morning. So you're going to celebrate. You're going to hit that 40 times, 40 times, 40 times, 40. And you're going to step outside. You're going to take a joy ride. So you step outside with your boys into the ride. It's a what? White Hyundai? Oh, you know what they say about a white Hyundai. If you're going to get into a high-speed chase with the CHP LAPD, you might not want to do it in a white Hyundai. <laughs> well, you turn up the sound right now. What are you listening to? Public Enemy? Oh, no. Not public enemy. What you listening to? N.W.A. Fuck the police. Oh no, you from L.A. N.W.A. That would be a cliche. No, you listening to De La Soul. From the soul, black medallions, no go. Hanging out with Paz, hanging out with Mace, buddy, 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 all in my face. Turn it down, Glenn. That's what they call you then, right, Glenn? Your family and your friend and them. They call you Glenn. Rodney King had not yet been invented. You were Glenn then to your family and friend. Turn it down, Glenn. But you're not gonna turn it down. Hell no, you gonna turn it up. I mean, you cast you cast Roger Guinevere Smith in your film. You are reaching for high art because that's right. what he does. That's what he does. And that's sort of what he adds to this character of Smiley who, yeah, I mean, I think he is absolutely underestimated. But you think about what he's carrying. Like, you know, the, the neighborhood seems to think of him as somebody who doesn't have a lot to offer. But he has chosen this art. He's drawn crowns on these people. He is a creative. He is an artist. He has a point of view. You know, as you're talking about it, I'm thinking more and more that everyone's actions – speak louder than their words here. And and everyone's telling you one narrative about themselves, but they are different than what their words are telling you. Even though they don't think they're lying. Right. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, look, to take it out of even a, a racial equation, just the idea that, you know, mother sister thinks she's better than the mayor. You know, she has no time for him. But here's a man who, yes, he is a drunk, but he saves a, a, a boy. You know, he uh, he's this character who seemingly is 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 teaching a lesson. You know, as he talks to you know these kids who are out to have fun. That's the the Martin Lawrence group of kids, and you know where he gets yelled at for doing a soliloquy. Like he is being judged on on one element of his character, and it, it really is. I mean, about how stereotypes in all forms kind of distance yourself from actually connecting to people and the and people are unique and people are different they're not just you're a drunk you're a white guy you're you know you're korean you're black like it's you're not just a cop you know it's like everyone's shades of gray right because spike isn't interested in only just dividing up the world by color he's dividing up you know all of the people in the neighborhood by how they feel about each other in every rubric. You know, it goes, I, why, why do I keep using the word rubric? Am I, I like to rubric. Smart? I don't know what's happening. Do you have a rubric cube? I, I'm very bad at them. <laughs> but you know, well, Steve White, who actually played one of the neighborhood kids who had to spend a lot of time screaming at Aussie Davis, which would be so hard oh, because yeah. it's Aussie freaking Davis. I mean, Aussie Davis, like he and Ruby D, these are people who like, even after this movie, they went out, they were like, they both got arrested 
for protesting when Amadou Diallo was shot. Wow. Like, they really put their bodies on the line for art and for politics. They were amazing. And so Steve White was like, how am I supposed to yell at Ozzie Davis? How am I supposed to look at this, like, epic lion figure and scream at him? And he apologized to him. He's like, I'm so sorry that I'm going to have to yell at you. And Ozzie Davis was just like, bring it on, whippersnapper. Do your job. I love it. (laughs) Which I love it. Yeah, like Ossie Davis's character is trying so many things to win mother sister over. He tries flowers. He tries politeness. He's very old world. He tips mm-hmm. his hat. But what he really does is she's this controlled woman who is not speaking a lot of the time to him. She won't even acknowledge him. And it's at the end when everything burns down that she's her breakdown there screaming like no, no, no over and over again. That's one of the worst things to see is this woman who's just so broken that she can't even con- con- contain herself anymore the way she's been. And that's what kind of gets him finally invited over where she will actually acknowledge him. Well, you know, again, I think about this idea of the the film being like a play or a parable or, you know, it's like she's overseeing the neighborhood. She's a part, she is mother earth, right. To a certain degree. And like, and now there is like this issue and, and it's like, it is affecting her. She's over like in a weird way, she's the protector of the block. And when this happens, it's, it's the total disorder. Like it's an incredibly powerful moment. Talking about great performances, we've talked a lot about this character, but not this actor. I mean, Bill Nunn, who plays Radio Rahim, is amazing in this film. I want to kind of go back and play another soliloquy. There's a beautiful one that he does about love and hate, and I think this movie is about that. That's the hype! Louis latest. Let me tell you the story of right hand, left hand. It's a tale of good and evil. Hey. It was with this hand that Cain iced his brother. Love. These five fingers, they go straight to the soul of man. The right hand, the hand of love. The story of life is this. Static. One hand is always fighting the other hand. And the left hand is kicking much ass. I mean, it looks like the right hand love is finished. But hold on, stop the presses. The right hand's coming back. Yeah, he got the left hand on the ropes now. That's right. Yeah. Ooh, it's a devastating right and hate is hurt. Down. Ooh, ooh, left hand hate KO'd by love. I love that. I love that monologue there. You know, it's, I mean, again, representative of the whole movie, this balance and the struggle of love and hate and and we see that uh, you know throughout the whole film this this delicate balance and how closely intertwined they are yeah i don't even mind as a left-handed person that my left hand is again considered evil oh i'm i'm the same we're in the same boat we'll let it go but i do like it i mean that's the most we really get to hear from radio rahim about who he is and how he thinks because otherwise a lot of what we know about him is just based on action he wants to play his music very, very loud, and he kind of just wants to win. There's that interesting showdown he has with the Puerto Rican kids in the neighborhood, and how he blasts out their music that Mookie has actually dedicated to his girlfriend. And then as soon as he wins, he walks away. He just wanted yeah. to win. You know, um, I wanted to pull a quick clip of Bill Nunn talking about this character. Bill Nunn, uh, just a great actor, but this is, I, I think, just a great, um, fun way of how he approached the character. It wasn't like a deep process. I mean, I'm not, I'm not deep. I mean, I don't, I'm not one of them kind of Johnny Carson cats that get on Johnny and say, well, when I was preparing for Raheem, you know, I went and lived with gang members and, you know, had them whoop my ass a couple of times so I could really see how it felt, you know? No, I don't have to 
getting my ass kicked to, to play like I'm, you know, I'm, I don't, you know what I mean? I love that clip because he is such a great actor and a, and a, and a Shakespearean actor and a theater trained actor. And, you know, and, and I think he kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit. And it's like, no, he's just playing the emotion of this character. That's all he really needed to do is just he didn't need to do any more because we all are. I think we're all a part of these characters. We can all identify with every one of these characters. You know, I think that's another sign of how good of a director Spike Lee is, that he's working with a cast that's coming in at all different levels. First time actors, girls he literally met at a club, Rosie Perez, you know, people who have been acting forever. And he was able to get great performances out of all of them equally. Like he was able to meet them where they were, which I think is really spectacular. Yeah, there's not a single bad performance in this film. You know, I said earlier, like, you know, the only real antagonist to a degree are the police. But then when you think about it, we're introduced to the police in this way where they're incredibly friendly to the community. You know, they the kids are, you know, spraying this guy in a Cadillac. You know, they they do like they fuck with this guy who's being a real dick. Um, and then the cops just kind of let it go. You know, they kind of they are part of the the fun of that summer day. You know, they're not they don't come in and everyone's like, <gasps> you know, um, but then you're also seeing them driving by our three guys on the sidewalk and kind of just, you know, you see the looks and the eyes and they're they're being judged. And then you see them in the pizza place. Like, you're seeing them as people too. Uh, and even though they do the most violent act, which is they are murdering, you know, they murder someone for no reason. And then they're, they actually are the people who lie. They're like, he's okay. Yeah. They're like, no, he's not okay. By the and way. they run away and they run, they, yeah. and they're the only ones who run away. Like, I feel like there is a thing with when Sal's pizza place is on fire, everyone's there and they're all in the street. It's, it is like, um, for it's lack their of a better, neighborhood. It's their neighborhood. Yeah, it's like a, it's a block party in the sense like no one's like, get out of here. We need to get out of here. Let's, we need to disperse. They only are dispersed once the cops come back. But it's like they are there for their community. And the cops immediately leave the community when they create this like awful action uh, that affects everyone. They're like, we're out. And then they come back later like, oh, we're back. You know, but it's, it's an interesting thing. Like they abandon the community. They do. They do. I mean, there's these moments of just real visual abandonment. You know, mm-hmm. they're like kicking Raheem when he's dead, telling him to get up, which is to me maybe the worst part of the film. Yeah. And that angle again of that cop. But you see him. Yeah, you see right how frightened there. he is. You Don't you feel that? I mean, I felt that that cop was like scared. He's like he's kicking him because he can't even fathom what just went on. His anger went too far. Like everyone's anger goes too far. His went Way too far. And I, I, I noticed that. And there's a, a video that's being passed around with that Nevada police officers who, uh, you know, chase this family into their apartment complex because their daughter took like a 99 cent, you know, doll. And you see you you hear it in these police. They're screaming the most, you know, aggressive stuff. But it's quaking, too. It's like, you know, it's I don't know. Yeah, I think this, no, in a lot of those videos, a lot of those videos, it's the fear of the policeman that you can tell is the trigger that sets everything on edge. And I don't know where that comes from. Like I've been hearing in training videos, it's a lot of like them being told when they leave for work every day, make it home to your kids as though they won't, you know, right. and that they instill a lot of fear in the way that policemen are trained and you see them walk through the world with so much fear. And it feels like that's one of the major things that has to get dialed back is to see them as working with the community as the cops are sort of here earlier mm-hmm. on and not against the community. Yeah. But yeah, right after even that scene where like the cops flee, you know, you have Mookie making this one quiet choice where he like gets off the side of the sidewalk next to the pizza place and he crosses the street away from the pizza place and he decides to join that side of the community. 
you know, Spike Lee has this kind of camera shot of like panning down everybody's faces as they're screaming at Sal in the pizza place, you know, just going through everybody as a line as they all say something. And then it comes around to Spike who has to leave and join that group of people because he can't stand there anymore. Right. And, and I mean, it's all just like such visual, emotional, really powerful storytelling. And then to go from there to like the shots of people with hoses and like footage that we know so much from the civil rights struggle. I mean, <sighs> maybe, I mean, I, maybe I'm making a ridiculous statement, but I'll say it anyway. Maybe the right choice that he made was in in doing violence to inanimate object instead of, you know, the store, instead of to people. Because that could that fight have turned into fisticuffs, you know, because they even go, you know, the, the, the three men on the street approach the Korean grocer too, you know, and it's, and. And the Korean grocer tries to say that he, he is not white either. Yeah. He says he's black and they're like, no, but he's like, I, it's, I am not white. At yeah. This is where they kind of fall with that. By the way, that actor, Stephen Park, who's so fantastic. He's one of the people who a few years ago was kind of starting that conversation again about the way we treat Asian actors in film. Mm -hmm. He was he gave a huge statement, a really wonderful article about why can't we see Asian actors as sexy? Why can't we ever see them as like sex objects? You know, why why is he limited in playing like the kind of roles he's playing? And he's really tremendous. And I think that this is the first year that we've ever seen a turn of that from crazy rich Asians, you know, we're seeing from that into, uh, you know, always my maybe, you know, the Randall Park movie. It's I don't like, think I've ever seen anything more beautiful than, than um, Henry Golding in a tuxedo. <laughs> I mean, there is this idea too that, um, you know, this idea of like, you know, when you are like a farmer, you do this thing of you, you burn down the fields and then you use that to plant your next season. And I feel like, you know, what's interesting about this movie in, in a little respect is like, it need like something needs to happen. This person in their community, you know, Radio Rahim is murdered. So something needs to happen, right? Because it cannot continue like this. And yes, the next day is just as hot as the day before. And who knows what that will bring out. But there is this moment at the end where like, you need, like, Mookie, in a weird way, I, I think in a in an oddly heroic way, by driving everyone to the pizza place, makes this moment to let everybody exercise their anger and their feelings. And 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 you know, even when Sal and his sons are kind of quarantined over in the on front of the brownstone, they're just watching and they're separate and they're you know it's. It's almost like everyone knows that this has this moment needs to happen. I don't know what kills me about their faces, about Sal and Vito and Pino's faces there, is you see Sal broken. Mm -hmm. You see Pino being like, I always knew this would happen, which is horrible to mm -hmm. like have it have him feel vindicated that he's right. right. And then you have Vito who you've been rooting for, and you're not sure how he's gonna feel. You're not sure if he's gonna be like, Maybe my brother is right. And that is awful. Yeah. It's awful because you you want you want him to be safe. You want him to be sweet. You want so much for him. And you don't want this to make him agree with I mean, yeah, Vito is this man literally caught in between, right? Like he's got his brother like literally wrestling with him in one room saying, Don't listen to Mookie. And then you have Mookie taking him out on a run, you know, to deliver pizza and, and they're talking like he is literally the person caught in the middle. You know, if you were to have a sequel or who the character you'd want to see most, I think, in a sequel is Vito. Where does Vito go? What what side does he land on? Can I get mad at the cops for bringing up the T word? What's the T word? Oh, let's play it. 
figured I'd put up a big high rise in the neighborhood. Yeah, a lot of people want to move here. Why not? Okay. Want a condominium? Put a couple straws in there, Mr. Trump. But of course. Mr. Trump's. Trump's pizza. I love that Trump got a reference in this. I mean, it just continues to show you how kind of timely it is. Uh, that makes it kind of even weirder that this is the movie the Obamas saw on their first date. Yeah. You know, I, <laughs> I did a little uh, research. I just Googled, uh, Google mapped this area and I thought, oh, for sure it is going to be totally condos and high rises and, and completely different. And you look at it and it, it's, it's pretty much the same. Is it really? Because yeah. I was thinking like, oh man, Sal was right. Like, get your real estate. Like, no, it's interesting. It like it it was shocking to me to look at. It's like on one side, because uh, they built this pizza place. It's apartment building, but not a fancy apartment building. And the other side, where the Korean grocer is, it's still an abandoned lot. Really? Yeah. It's it 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 was surprising. I was like, oh wow. I you know because I just know how New York has like changed, and even Bed Stuy became like of this beautiful you know. A gentrified area and I was in my mind I was like oh I cannot wait to see what this looks like now and it, it seems like it retained uh, a little bit of its authenticity and, and, and who you know what it yeah. was yeah I mean I thought you were going to say it was like a CrossFit gym in a place with That's what I was, coffee yeah, I kind of was hoping for that and we're not not hoping for it for the neighborhood but I was like oh I would love to see the, the juxtaposition of that um, I mean apparently like the group Fruit of Islam did the security while they were yes. shooting this and you know one of the things they did is they had to move like a little crack nest that was on this block around the corner. They're like, get off the street. And they're like, no, they're like, go around the corner. And they're like, okay, fine. But there was, I think, a little bit of tension with the neighborhood while they were trying to shoot this there. You know, people being like, you're disrupting our businesses. You know, you're getting in the way of everything we're trying to do. I, it's surprising to me. I think at the end of shooting, Spike Lee, I think, put a little bronze plaque on the corner. Like, here's where we shot. Do the right thing. And someone stole it. Oh, wow. Um you know, talking about Trump and and how this movie kind of has a still um, ability to make you think now in 2019 as much as it did in 1989, I also thought was really interesting was climate change. Obviously, it's the hottest day of the year in New York, but it's 92 degrees. That's and, not that hot. I'm sorry. I'm from uh, Texas. Well, but no, but I'm, I, I'm also, I'm from New York and I think 92 degrees was very hot for New York in 1989, uh, you know, looking at New York's weather last year, it's like between 94 and 99 degrees for an entire week. And it actually, the humidity makes it feel more than 100 degrees. So even in a slow way, this movie is literally tracking climate change, you know, from 92 degrees to now all the way up to 99 degrees last summer in New York City. Uh, <laughs> oh, like that's I, so grim. I know. I mean, it is true, though. Like, you know, they have that little panning of looking at all the newspaper headlines mm -hmm. and one of them being like, yes, it's hotter. Yes, it's muggier. Yes, you're going crazy. That actually was a real New York Times article from the summer before. And of course, wow. because I'm a nerd, I went and looked it up so I could look oh, at the really? thing. Yeah. Do you want to see? Okay, yes. here's what it said. It starts by saying that it is the third hottest summer in the New York region since 1869 when Ulysses S. Grant was present, and that it is taking its toll on the psychological makeup of an already feverish city, straining civility in offices, automobiles, and parks. So this really was in the zeitgeist when he was putting this movie together, this idea that heat did drive people crazy. Like this article from the New York Times has people working at churches calling it an impending sense of doom. They have people saying that everyone is very crotchety, and they even have police captains saying that what you really have to worry about isn't the daytime exactly when it's hot, it's the nighttime when the cool air comes in because that's when the aggression comes out because people actually have the energy to go do something. Wow. It's dark. I think that is a beautiful moment to hear ML's speech on the polarized caps. 
Well, gentlemen, the way I see it, if this hot weather continues, it's going to melt the polar caps and the whole wide world. And all those parts that ain't water already will surely be flat. <laughs> Dumb ass, simple motherfucker. The way you read that shit, eh? And polar caps. Oh, don't worry about it. But when it happens, and I mean my boat, and you black asses are drowning, don't call for me to throw you no rope, no lifesaver, or no nothing. No nothing. Yeah. You fool, you 30 cent away from having a quarter. How the fuck you gonna get a boat? <laughs> hey, yeah, boy. Don't worry about it. Goddamn right, don't worry about it. Look at you, you ragged as a roach, eat the holes out of donut, ragged as a motherfucker. Don't worry about it. I mean, good shit, eh? I mean, good shit. I let that run a little bit longer because I love Robin Harris, who, of course, died the year after Do the Right Thing came out. And I feel like we have been robbed of so much Robin Harris in the wow, world. Wow, he died that quickly after that movie? I thought he 90. was... 90. Wow. Yeah, okay. 1990. So I just, I want as much Robin Harris in the world as I can. So, Amy, I know we've been talking about it throughout the podcast, but it is now time to talk to the man behind the film. We are so excited to get him Fresh off an Academy Award, uh, in post-production on a brand new film, uh, the one, the only, Spike Lee. Welcome, Spike. All right, well, thank you so much uh, for doing this. Congratulations on your Oscar, and I'm sorry about Zion. Sorry about the what? Uh, Sorry about Zion not coming to the Knicks. (laughs) Oh, yeah. yeah. Why you bring that up two days before the draft? (laughs) Um, but the show is focusing on the best movies of all time and do the right thing is on this list of AFI films. And we're going to kind of focus on 99. (laughs) What number is it, Amy? Do you know? You are 96. Yeah. They need to revisit that that list. How many years ago did that come out? 2007. And they do need to revisit it. That's kind of why we're doing the show. Do the right thing comes out in 1989 and it felt like at that point it was an incredibly astute snapshot of where we are as a culture. It's dealing with like racism and immigration, gentrification, lack of representation, police brutality, global warming. And now it's 30 years later and it feels like this movie could come out this weekend. It's so incredibly timely. Well, my friends call me Negro Damas. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think that this speaks bad about our culture? I mean, is this damning that we're still in the same spot 30 years later? Well, or is- I mean, who would have thought, especially me, that we ever have an African-American president? So there has, it's not like nothing has changed since the summer 1989. Right. But a lot of things are the same, and that's the sad part. The NYPD strangulation of Ray Rahim was based upon a real NYU strangulation of a... Of a graffiti artist. His name was Michael Stewart. Right. So I was shocked when I saw Eric Gardner be choked by the NYPD in almost the same exact way that we saw Ray Raheem, which was based upon a real incident. And you're coming out of, you're writing this in a time where, like you said, Michael Stewart and you have Michael Griffith, who uh, was beaten in Howard Beach. How do you write this movie not leading with anger, you write this movie that's so balanced and, and fair and showing all these different viewpoints. How did well, how do you approach well, I that? Think I think it's, for me, it's not hard to have anger if the audience knows why people are mad. I mean, there's been a history of, I'm not going to call them riots, there's a history of uprisings of black folks in this country 
And, you know, something happened. Right. You know, when Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, America was in flames. When those cops got off with the beating of Rodney King, L.A. was in flames. So it's not like something happened. Now, I'm not saying that folks would burn shit down, but there's a reason for it. And as the writer, producer, and director, I would like to state once again, Mookie threw the garbage can through the window because he saw his best friend, Rahim, murdered in front of his eyes. It was there's this other theory of in here. Well, Mookie did that because he wanted to save Sal, Pino, and Vito. That was not it. Now that might be some people's interpret, interpretation, but that's not was my intent. Well, of course, that's a great thing about art. I mean, you know, people interpret things in many different ways. I mean, I was actually thinking about one thing, but I was a kid when I watched this movie. I always felt bad. How are you? How are you the first time you saw this? Gosh, I feel like I'm probably like 10 or 12 when I'm watching. How old are you in 80? The summer 89. How old are you? I mean, I got to do the math right now. Do the math. Do the math. I'm doing it. Hold on. Use your fingers. I'm going to get it out. Hold on. I'm going to do it right now. Hold on. I was 13 years old. All right. Yeah. And this movie was such a big part of my my just. Where'd you you grow? Where'd you see the film? I grew up in New York. Um, I worked in the Bronx and my dad lived in Queens and cool. yeah, so it was a big, it was just a big movie for me. And that soundtrack was on all the time in my yeah. car. I had the little tape deck. What? You were driving at 13? No, I was listening to it in my parents' car. Oh, I, your parents were playing. <laughs> my dad was very cool. My dad was very cool yeah, that he would let me you, play public enemy. Your father was rocking public enemy. He would let me play it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, my dad, my dad was out. Like my dad was good to be like, we went to go see a deaf comedy jam. We went to go mm-hmm. see, uh, Martin Lawrence. It was fun. My dad was very yeah. open to everything. You know, do the right thing was Martin Lawrence's first film. I know he's fantastic. I mean, this cast is Rosie, Rosie Perez's first film. Yeah. Could you tell the story of how Rosie Perez was discovered? I heard it was at a, a contest. Yes. We have two different versions. <laughs> <laughs> Rosie has Rosie's version, and I have my version. Which but, version uh, is the big butt contest version? Well, at the time of the party, the school days had just come out. And they had a birthday party in L.A., this club called Funky Reggae. And at the time, the biggest R&B hit was a song called The Butt by EU Go-Go Group, which is from the film. And so we flew EU out, and when they played the hit song, The Butt, we had a butt contest. Now, what Rosie leaves out is that she was dancing on top of a speaker. And I told her to come down because I knew anybody fell off that speaker, they'll break their neck and I'll be sued. So I got security to get her down, and she cursed me out like never been cursed out before. And I never heard a voice like that before. And at that time, I was writing a script. So I asked her, where are you from? She said, New York. I said, where in New York? She said, Brooklyn. She said, where in Brooklyn? I said, where in Brooklyn? She said, Fort Greene. I said, what? That's where I'm from. And at that moment, I decided that maybe she could be Mookie's girlfriend and make Mookie's girlfriend Puerto Rican. That's how it happened. I mean, your eye for talent is amazing. Did you find, I mean, I know you worked with Ozzy Davis before. I know that uh, you worked with Sam Jackson before. How did you yeah, find? Sam Jackson was in the school days. Yeah. And also I knew Sam from college because we both went to Morehouse 
He grabbed him and Sam and Bill Nunn, both went to Morehouse. But here's the thing, though. You, you, no one knows this. Uh, I originally went out to Robert De Niro to play Sal, and then I also went out to uh, Matt Dillon to play uh, Vito, the Dottero character. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. So you got a scoop. I love that. I want to talk to you about your camera work in this movie because it is amazing. It kind of pulls you out of being a passive watcher of the film and it just makes you a part of the action. I mean, this, the contrast of the high and the low angles. Well, again, the camera work is my classmate, Ernest Dickerson. Yeah. Ernest shot all my films at NYU. He, he shot my thesis film, which won a Student Academy Award called Joe's Best Side Barbershop. The Ernest shot in a row. She's going to have it, School Days, Do the Right Thing, Mo Better, Malcolm X. And so when you were collaborating with him, are you, t I mean, because this style that you guys created in your film, it does pull you in. I mean, is that something that you, when well, you're, we're, yeah. we were, you know, we're, we're NYU film geeks, so we watched a lot of films. Well, then you, you taught at NYU, and I'm wondering, like, what's some of the best pieces of advice that you give your students? Yes, I'm a tenure professor at NYU. I've been teaching there for 17 years. I'm also artistic director at Grad Film School. And the thing I really try to the, the stress is that hopefully you're doing this because you love this and you got to bust your ass. There's no room for slipping and sliding, shucking and jiving. You're not going to make it like that. You know, backsliding. You got to roll up your you know, elbow grease. You got to work. You got to put the work in. Do you think you could make a movie like this now at a studio, or do you think that that time has passed? Because Universal made this movie. Yes, and uh, I always give love to a love shout out to Tom Pollock, who's at the President Universal Pictures with a lot of my films there. And the reason why I say that's because Tom said to me, Mr. Pollock said to me, Spike, make the film you want, it just can't be a penny over budget. But another thing's that. With this film debuted in Cannes, there's a big, big, big brouhaha that do the right thing would incite riots. And I, I wish the both of you go see the articles written by David Denby and Joe Klein, which were very racist articles. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Very racist. They still have not apologized for those racist reviews of the film. In other words, they were saying, saying like, black people are not smart enough to make the distinction between what's on the screen and what's real life. So black people will come out of theaters burning and looting, but white audience go see Arnold Schwarzenegger shooting motherfuckers up left and right in the Terminator. But the white audience has intelligence to understand that, but a black audience doesn't have that. And, and didn't Demby even said, if audiences go wild, you are responsible. He said, he said, blood is on my hands. And this is... This, also, also yeah. that this film be responsible for David Dinkins not being the first African-American mayor in New York City. This movie, it seems like it's a, you know, it's ahead of its time because you did even get cited at Cannes too, right? I mean, with like, you know, it's like everything about this movie, it was... In the sh you can see now when they say back in the day, like sex lies and videotape, that's what it was up against in Cannes, right? At the... Well, I like to say, let the record state that me and Steven Sonberg have always been cool. Right. We're cool. All right. From the jump. My problems with the president of the jury, Ben Bendis, that motherfucker. 
I mean, there's a famous quote that had like a Louisville slugger bat waiting for him. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know he's, he's, over the years, look, it's cool. But over the years, he's had, you know, revisionist history. That, first of all, he said that the president of the jury does not have any sway. That is false. Because the late great Hector Babenko and Sally Field, who on the jury came back to me and told me that Ben Vendors, whatever he was doing as a president, that's what he did. And, and then his quote was that the reason why he didn't like the film is because Mookie was not a heroic character. I was like, WTF? <laughs> James Spade is masturbating the whole movie, and, and that's a heroic character? <laughs> <laughs> But at least where we are today in 2019 on this AFI list, you're there and Driving Miss Daisy is definitely not on this list. Well, I'd like to get another shout out, another love shout out to Kim Bassinger. Kim announced the films that were nominated Best Picture. And impromptu, in the middle of her speech, Whatever she was reading off the teleprompter, she said, you know, one, look, I'm paraphrasing, one film that should be amongst these things is do the right thing. And she caught holy hell for that. So thank you, Kim. I was shocked. It's I mean, I crazy was, that this movie was not, you got only nominated for a screenplay and Danny Aiello got nominated for. Lost out to Denzel for the glory. Wow. And don't bring that up to Danny Aiello now. I should have won. I should have won. It was that one fucking tear went down his cheek. <laughs> when he got whipped. <laughs> I should have won, Spike. Talk to me about that, that final scene in the movie. You could go any way, you know, with Mookie and Sal... You know, I think this it, it ends this movie on an interesting note, and I feel like, you know, I think later on we find out in Red Hook Summer that uh, that Sal has opened up a pizza place in Red Hook, and Mookie is working for him there. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but yeah, I mean, what? How did you approach kind of figuring out how you wanted to put this coda on the film? This you know, this last scene between these two characters. We I thought we needed it. But right. at the same time, I thought it had to be truthful. Original, this film was set up at Paramount Pictures. And at the last minute, they pulled the okey-doke on me, saying that Spike, they wanted me to have Mookie and Sal hugging each other. I was saying, I'm not doing that shit. And I had a friend, Sam, Sam Kitt, who worked at Universal, who got the script to Sean Daniels, who read it, who gave it to Tom Pollock, like, over a weekend... It went straight to Universal, and the rest is history. I was not going to have that movie end with some Hollywood bullshit ending with Mookie and Sal hugging each other. I was not doing that. Right. Hell, fuck, hell fucking no. But I'd like to get back to Tom Pollock. The reason why I get shout out to Tom Pollock is that he was very heroic. People forget there was, there was a, a lot of people who were on Tom Pollock's ass saying you could not release this film. And especially cannot release this film in the summer because you know how black folks act in the summer. <laughs> At least make it come out in the you know it gets hot. Yeah. You know, put out in the fall. In addition to that, Tom had just put out Mr. Pollard just put out Last Temptation of Christ, and he had death threats 
him and his family. He had to have bodyguards. So it's perfectly understandable for Tom Pollock to say to me, Spike, look, I'm having trouble. I'm have bodyguards. My family's scared. So I, I would have understood if he would, you know, delay the release. But he said no. He said no. We're putting this out in the summer. That's why I always give Tom Pollock a hug when I see him. Because he stood up. He didn't have to do that. Speaking of, of the, the heat of the summer and the whole premise of this movie, of this taking place on the hottest day, you know, I read something that you were a little bit inspired by Hitchcock, too. I know you said you, you know, you're coming from NYU's film school. You're studying like uh, all these. It wasn't Hitchcock. It was like one of those. It was Twilight Zone, One Step Beyond, one of those shows. I can't remember where. It was about a scientist who was doing a, a report on how murders go up past a certain temperature. And at the end, in the end, it gets up murdered. And also, I just know going up in Brooklyn, New York, after 95 degrees, motherfuckers lose their mind. Yeah. <laughs> so I just knew, you know, just New York City in general, ain't that people, ain't that million people on top of each other. And with the heat, people just get crazy. But if heat makes people angrier, I mean, what do you think we're going to do about global warming? Well, look, we had, uh, you know, the corner would talk about global warming. I wrote that script in 90, we yeah. it came out in 89, but I wrote it in 88. So, I, I told you before, Nigo Damas, <laughs> we were talking about global warming. We were talking about police brutality. Uh, we were talking about gentrification. You even have Trump in the movie. For a brief yeah. moment, yeah. Yeah. The Obamas, though, they still do the right thing on their first date. I mean, do you feel like you their helped them date, fall in the love? first date between Michelle and Barack, they went to see Do the Right Thing. I always say, like I said, I'm glad Barack didn't choose Dramas Daisy or Michelle would have got rid of him. <laughs> 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 Michelle, let's go on a date. All right, Barack, what do you want to see? Let's go see... Drop his daisy. You know what, Barack? You know, uh, 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 you uh, uh, don't don't call me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> I will take credit. That did help him. Yes, I'll go on record saying <laughs> him asking Michelle to see do the right thing the first date. I hooked him up. <laughs> But <laughs> <laughs> well, they were all whoa, 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 whoa. They they went to they went to uh, Baskin Robbins before too for ice cream. <laughs> Speaking of the that Rocky Road works. <laughs> <laughs> works every time, Rocky Road. I mean, there were critics who were like huge, huge, huge champions of the film. I mean, one of them being like Roger Ebert. And I read this interview that you did with Roger Ebert right after the film came out a couple years in 1991, where you said you didn't want your career to be boxed into you only being able to make films about racism. And I was wondering. Well, this is, this is, this is, uh, uh, that's true. But, you know, it's a theme. No, you know, you look at the body of work. That is a theme. Do you think that you continue to make films about race because if you didn't, who else would or? Well, I'm still a black man in America. <laughs> Yeah. See, they changed. 
I mean, that's one of the things I think about that's so kind of scary about Black Klansmen is at the end, you'd be like, oh, you know, this is a period piece. And at the end, you're like, oh, but we're still here. We're still in this spot. You know, the when you. The president of the United States, the so called president of the United States of America, did not condemn white supremacy, did not condemn the alt right, did not condemn neo Nazis, and did not condemn the KKK. He didn't do it. For fear of losing his base. The whole world saw what was happening. There's a chance for him to speak on this. And. We all saw, as an end of the film, forever, he's going to be, uh, I don't call him by his name, I call him Agent Orange, <laughs> forever, he's going to be on the wrong side of history. Is that the ultimate win, is winning history? Oh, yeah, I think that, I mean, it doesn't happen right away, but, I mean, it's been 30 years now since, if you look at the film, The One Best Picture, Drama's Daisy, and Do the Right Thing to even get nominated, and then this the film that won this year, Green Book. So, uh, you know, history is uh, the final de- determiner. You know, I mean, how many people can be watching Green Book three yeah. years from now? You know, we'll see. No, I mean, and to that point, like, you're the only black filmmaker on the AFI list, and who do you think needs to be added? I mean, the whole, I mean, the first, before we add... List of track. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking about that. There's so many movies on this list that you're like, wait, that's on the list of the greatest films of all time? But again, when it comes to list or awards, the first thing I always think to myself, who is voting? Right. Because if who's voting determines who's going to win. This is basic. That's what happens to the Academy when they... Hashtag Oscar So White was not a good look for the Academy. And they had to change. And they opened up their membership. They had to open it up. Right. And now it looks like more, the membership now is more reflective how America, how what America looks like. Well, this is amazing talking to you, and the film is out now, and you also have, you know, She's Gotta Have It's coming back to Netflix. Your films from the past. Well, we just finished our second season. So it's like, this is amazing that you have this body of work that now, not only, you know, over 30 years ago, that you have this, you know, that it, this resurgence of old ideas and you're winning Academy Awards now in the present. It's, it's an amazing career and uh, it's just amazing to get a chance to talk to you. Well, well thank you for having me on. And uh, I'm not done. One last story I'll tell you. Uh, after I received my Oscar... I was on a plane that very next morning to Thailand. So I just got back. Right. I just finished my new feature film called The Five Bloods. Feature film and the star is Chadwick Boseman. So we're in post-production now. Can't wait for that. A Vietnam epic film. Epic. David Lean epic. Oh, wow. We're talking about Bridge River Kwai, Laws of Arabia. Dr. Zhivago, David Lean, epic. I cannot wait. When do you think that's going to come out? Uh, probably a year from now. Well, thank you so much, Spike. Oh, this thank is- you. Goodbye from the People's Republic of Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Amy, I think 
you know, we've unpacked a lot. We've unpacked a lot with even Spike. I, you know, um, I could keep talking about this for 70 more hours. I yes. love this movie. There's so much to talk about, but yes. Um, I think it's probably pretty apparent that we both agree that this movie should and is rightly so on this list, but I agree with Spike. I think it needs to be higher. It's 96 right now on the list. Absolutely. It's got to be higher. It's a complex movie. It's an important movie. And I think, you know, the way we talked about in the heat of the night dealing with racism, I think that that deals with um, a very acceptable level of racism. It's sort of not to belittle it, but this movie came out the same year as Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy won the Academy Award. That's the Driving Miss Daisy version of racism, albeit better done. This is much more of an unvarnished, you know, real look at uh, at what is going on. And I think that it's interesting. We have so many movies about Vietnam that are unvarnished. And this is, uh, you know, this feels like a really, you know, the only film that really is is digging into racism on a, in a, on a deep level. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to think about how the Rod Steiger character of In the Heat of the Night kind of grows into a Sal. You mm-hmm. know, I, you can see, I think, a lot of DNA in those two characters. But this is a film that's sort of populated by nothing but Sal's. You know, right. one of our things that we sort of were talking about when we were watching In the Heat of the Night is Sidney Poitier is a perfect person. And right. in that movie, he's pretty great. He's There's almost nothing wrong with him. In this film, I think everybody is a lot more complicated. Yeah, you know, I think people everybody, are people. I mean, Mookie's a terrible dad. Like, everybody has a problem. I mean, I think they're just showing that no one is perfect, no one is right, no one is, you know, again, going back to what I said in the beginning, there's no black and white here. You know, I think you can see yourself in every person's position. I sympathize with every one of them, and I also can get mad at every one of them. You know, it, it it's, that's when Spike Lee is at his best, is like kind of telling these stories that, um, like what you said to your point, it's... It's not telling you how to think. It's just showing you how people think. Exactly. And what I really value about that is the trust. You know, I feel a lot of times like a director doesn't trust their audience to be able to understand the movie, to be able to walk away with something. They have to have somebody turn around and be like, did Mookie do the right thing to the camera? Yeah. You know, this is a movie that I think respects its audience a lot. And you can tell that. You can really see that kind of radiating off of it, which is why even though I didn't particularly love Black Klansman, I love that it got us this moment of Spike Lee at the Oscars. The 2020 presidential election is around the corner. Let's do the right thing. You know I had to get that in there. (laughs) Which, by the way, as Love Daddy says, register to vote. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, All right, so, Amy, I guess it all comes down to this. Is there a Simpsons clip for Do the Right Thing? Kind of. Okay, we're getting into some rougher territory. Yeah, yeah. there's a weakish one. This is from an episode called Mo Letter Blues. Uh, And what Mo Letter Blues is about is uh, Homer, Apu, and the Reverend, they take a boat trip with their kids. They're away from Springfield for a day. And right as they're getting on the boat, a letterman runs up, hands them a letter from Mo, saying that Mo is leaving town with one of their wives. And so all three of them spend the day being like, Whose wife is it going to be? Who is he going to take away with him? Have we all been terrible husbands? They all have been terrible husbands. And the closest thing there is to a callback to do the right thing is this line that is one of the catchphrases of Samuel L. Jackson. The ferry will be back in 10 minutes. It'll take us home to find out the truth. The truth. The roof. Amazing. I mean, look, I think these movies are a little bit harder to get a quick joke in. Uh, but you know what? Based on our track record, I bet you Futurama did something uh, like this. I feel like Futurama <laughs> has become our real uh, backstop to the show. Do you uh, think they go through everything that the Simpsons are missing and they're like, ha ha? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, that's 
<laughs> they haven't tackled this yet. Um, Amy, this is fascinating talking to you about this film, and it was amazing to talk to Spike Lee about this film. Uh, sorry we have to put this away, because next week we'll be talking about another film, kind of, again, dealing with Vietnam. We are can't get out of this hole. Enough, there's two movies about race uh, and about nine movies about uh, war and, and especially Vietnam on this list. You know, movies about Vietnam are my Vietnam. Uh, we are going to see The Deer Hunter, which is a film I've never seen. Uh, I don't know anything about. Really? Yep. I just know there's a Russian roulette scene. That's all I know. Well, is this when you want to guess what it's about? Yeah. Um, I imagine it's kind of like the big chill on a hunting trip. Uh, it's about a gun- bunch of guys who all fought in the war together, and they go away on this trip, and uh, their issues about – what they saw and experienced come out, and uh, and you know one of them is going to get killed on this trip. That's my that's my that's my gut <laughs> based on nothing. Uh, I don't. I'm not looking at anyone's faces. I think I'm wrong. But uh, why don't you call in and tell us what you think uh, this movie is about? Uh, if you've not seen it, of course, you can call us at um, unspooled voicemail line at seven four seven six six six. 5824. That's 747-666-5824. What is Deer Hunter about? Is it about a deer hunting trip like I think? Is it kind of like wild hogs but a little heavier? You tell us. Did I tell you I had a cheeseburger in the town that the wild hogs drive through when I was no. in New Mexico? Very good cheeseburger. Wow. I imagine that they all probably stopped. There was there a signed picture of Tim Allen They're up on the wall. A bazillion. And Martin Lawrence Whoa. from Do the Right Thing to <laughs> Wild Hogs. Um, all right. So we will see you next week for Deer Hunter. Thank you.